Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am so pumped today. You have no idea why. I will explain to you why. Today, I am in Las Vegas, Nevada. I came here for a beautiful event, the Shaquille O'Neal Comedy All-Stars, which Bill Bellamy was hosting. It was a really special event at the Rio. And before I came here, I thought to myself, let me reach out to a guy who really, really means a lot to me and who's very special and who I really, really love dearly. A guy who is probably one of the greatest magicians of all time. And I'm talking about Lance Burton. And I reached out to Lance and immediately, and I'm so humbled by it, he said, yes, he would love to do it. So we are here at lunchtime on a Saturday. I program his address here into my phone. I notice it's about 25 minutes away from where I am. I'm thinking, where could that possibly be? I call an Uber driver. We come here. And I am not kidding you, ladies and gentlemen. We are driving up to a castle in the sky. I think Rhode Island could safely fit in this house. It's unbelievable. We are sitting in this beautiful family room with windows that look like they're three stories high overlooking the mountains of Las Vegas. You know you're meeting somebody who's famous when you drive up to the gate and the gate lets you in and then there's two more gates after that. 
before you get anywhere. That is pretty intense, everybody. And I'm excited to be here with Lance Burton. As you know, I just want to thank you guys so much for everything. You guys have been so fantastic to me and to the show and been so supportive. And I can't even begin to tell you how grateful I am. And it's just been so great getting all the responses from all of you from all over the world. Really, really incredible. So thank you so much for all your support. And as always, I like to look at my guest and I never know what I'm going to say. But I will tell you one thing, everybody. I think today, as I come into this compound and I see Lance Burden, I think I know what I'm going to say. When I look at Lance Burden and I sit around here in this beautiful basil, I think to myself, what does it take to get from Louisville, Kentucky to a castle in the sky in Las Vegas? All of you out there thinking to yourselves how you're going to get to the next level. What's it going to take to have the kind of life that you've always dreamed of? And I'm going to tell you what it's going to take. Something you've heard probably over and over again. It's going to take the knowledge in your mind and your soul that you can do it. The knowledge that you are great. The knowledge that you can be one of the best, if not the best ever. The knowledge that it's okay to study footage of Houdini and Harry Blackstone Jr., and other great comedians from vaudeville all the way up to the 50s and 60s. There's nothing wrong with seeing the blueprint of how people were successful if you're in Louisville, Kentucky, and you have no access to anything else. It's okay to work harder than everybody else as a beginner and work really hard to get your first break so that when you do get your first break, and you get your first Tonight Show shot with Johnny Carson, where they only give you five and a half to six and a half minutes, and you do your rehearsal, you make sure that you do something that people talk about so much that Johnny comes down from his dressing room. Johnny rarely came down from his dressing room. But on that day, Johnny did come down. And when he saw the rehearsal of Lance Burton, and what he'd worked hard for and probably put 10,000 hours into that first routine. He said to his producers, let's double the kid's time. Let's give him 12 minutes. And if you know anything about The Tonight Show, you know that no one got 12 minutes as a performer. If you're a comic, if you got four and a half to five and a half minutes or a magician, it was a miracle. But Lance Burton from The King was given 12 minutes. And guess what happens when you have 12 minutes on The Tonight Show when it's the only game in town and 30 million people watch the show and you hold them for 12 minutes? It blows people away. You know how I know it blows people away? Because I was at Boston University. I believe I just graduated and I bought myself a VCR and I put it in my living room. And one thing I knew about the VCR 
to slow things down. There was a pause and a play button. And this is how much my memory serves me and how I know that this performance was one of the greatest performances ever. Because I still remember it to this day. And Lance, I know he won't correct me because I know this is the routine I remember. I don't remember everything. But what I remember is a trick that was so simplistic in the vision of it where a lit candle appeared from a handkerchief. And I recorded this performance because my uncle was the number one expert on Houdini in the world, and I loved magic. I would play this over and over again, pressing play and pause, play and pause, play and pause, (laughs) watching every second of this candle come out of this handkerchief And I swear to you, everybody, I still could not figure out what the fuck was happening. (laughs) And so if I'm a kid from Longmeadow, Massachusetts, hanging out in Boston after college, and I'm talking about it 35 years later, you can imagine what 30 million people were talking about back then. And so that break where he was extraordinary and all the hard work paid off, led to many other specials. The first one being an NBC Hour special, which was one of the first of its kind that just blew people away. So now, instead of doing 12 minutes, he's doing about 42 minutes and 30 seconds when you count the commercials. And what happens when you do your work in any line of work, you either do great work and they give you more work, or you do ordinary work and you don't get anything else or you get fired. But Lance Burton didn't do ordinary work and he got multiple specials after that, after at least annual specials that were incredible and really put him on the map. But then a lot of people don't understand. You do the Tonight Show, you think it's a big break. It is a big break. But you get a check for $535.50. That's not going to pay the rent in Louisville, Kentucky. So you got to figure out how you're going to take that to the next level. And so what Lance did was he got a job at a show in Las Vegas, the Follies Brigere, which is very interesting. I know he knows that he could have gone into a small room in Las Vegas right away. And I know he knows that he could have done his own show right away. But what he did was he thought to himself, if I'm going to go into this big market, I'm going to prove to this market that I belong. And I'm going to take as much time as it takes to do that. And he spent about nine years at the Follies Brigere building a name for himself until a hotel came calling and said, you know, Lance, we'd love to have you at our hotel, and that was the Hacienda Hotel. So Lance went into the Hacienda, and what hotels normally do when they want to bet on an act like Lance, but they're not really sure, they'll do something where they'll ask the artist to bet on themselves. They'll say, hey, we'll do a four-wall deal. You can take the majority of the door, and we'll take the bar and the food, and hopefully you'll bring in customers that'll gamble, and it'll be a great investment. But I would like some guaranteed money, Hacienda Hotel. I mean, I think I'd like to get a paycheck every week that's huge. And 
I'm sorry, Lance, you're just on the, you know, you, you weren't even the star of that show that you were at at the other place. I, you know, I can't really justify that. You're going to have to bet on yourself. But Lance Burton bet on himself. And so when things worked out at the Hacienda for him and he started drawing, guess who came calling? The Monte Carlo. And the Monte Carlo said, we want you. But at that point, Lance was in a position of power. So he's able to get more things, more financial concessions, guaranteed money versus the door, and something that had never, ever been done before. They gave him his own theater that had his name on it. Now you come to Vegas. Oh, it's the Penn & Teller Theater. It's the David Copperfield Theater. It's the Barry Katz Theater. Back then, there was only one theater in 96, the Lance Burton Theater. And he signed a 13-year deal there, unprecedented. It was a $100 million deal over the course of time versus what he's doing. And when you perform well, when you do well, you say to yourself, am I going to make it? Is it going to happen? 13 years. How am I going to make it happen for 13 years? Well, guess what, everybody? He did. He actually did it for 14 years. And then he retired. And so the point is, is that his career grew with his hard work innovation, always thinking about the next step, always thinking about how to get to the next level and always performing to the highest levels. And if you ever saw Lance Burton perform, he could perform for somebody who was 90 and he could perform for somebody who was 19 and somebody who was nine. And every single person in that crowd loved him. He was accessible. He was kind. He was generous. He never looked like he was having anything bother him at the time. And he gave everything to every single performance and every trick he did. And so when I sit here in this palatial mansion and I look across at Lance Burton, I think of the American dream. And if you're out there anywhere living in some obscure part of your country and you have a dream to be something special, it's pretty evident that if you really commit to whatever you want to do and you work harder than anybody else, not just in your area, but anybody else in your country, and you do this work that's extraordinary, that people look at and they say, holy shit, that is unbelievable, like I did when I saw the candles trick on The Tonight Show. <laughs> I guarantee you, whatever profession you're in, I think you'll have a great chance of having a castle on a hill and having the kind of career that Lance Burton has had. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man 
who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm here with the fabulously talented, legendary magician, Lance Burton, who's also a director, a filmmaker, a writer, an actor. And after I wake him up, after this introduction, we'll have a great podcast. I think I lulled them to sleep on the cold open. I actually dozed off for a few minutes myself, but I came back out of it, and I'm here for you. So let's go for this introduction. It's long. It's exciting. I've covered a lot of it, but who cares? We're going for it. I always like to give the introduction that goes the whole distance of time for somebody. Lance Burton is widely considered by his peers to be the greatest stage magician of the past century. As magic historian Mike Cavani has stated, take every magician in the world, line them up, and give them each 12 minutes. Lance wins. Born and raised aforementioned Louisville, Kentucky, Lance Burton burst onto the national stage on October 28, 1981, by making his first appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. So impressed was Carson while watching the rehearsal that, as I said, he allowed him to do a 12-minute routine. Through the course of Burton's career, he was invited back for a total of 10 appearances while Johnny Carson was host, and another 10 while Jay Leno had his tenure. Over the years, Lance Burton has performed on a wide range of TV shows, racking up appearances on Letterman, Leno, The View, Ferguson, the world's greatest magic, Hollywood Squares, and even acted in guest-starring roles in Knight Rider and Las Vegas. In 1996, Burton's first TV special, Lance Burton, Master Magician, The Legend Begins, and yes, it did. It aired on NBC. This was quickly followed by a series of annual TV specials, which included Lance Burton, Master Magician, The Encounter, Lance Burton, Master Magician, Top Secret, Lance Burton, Master Magician on the Road, 
and Lance Burton Master Magician Young Magician Showcase. And he also hosted specials for the History Channel, including the one that I produced, Houdini Unlocking the Mystery. He's also hosted things for Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, The Family Channel, and many, many more. While successful on TV, Lance Burton's greatest accomplishments have been made in live performance. Working primarily in Las Vegas, he has performed an astounding 15,000 shows in his 30-year-plus career. His first job in Vegas was a feature act in the Follies Bergere at the Tropicana Hotel, a job he held for nine years. And in 1991, he opened his own show, Lance Burton, World Champion Magician, at the Hacienda Hotel, which ran for five years. But in 1996 was his crowning moment when the Monte Carlo Hotel gave him his own show and he opened Lance Burton Master Magician at the brand new Monte Carlo Hotel at the time in his own theater, the Lance Burton Theater. This was the first time any entertainer in the history of Las Vegas had a theater built and named for him. The contract at the Monte Carlo was for an unprecedented 13 years, the longest contract ever given to a live performer, ever. Lance stayed at the Monte Carlo for a total of 14 years, performing over 5,000 shows for over 5 million people, grossing over $200 million. His last performance there was September 4th, 2010, a sad day for magic in Las Vegas. Throughout his career, Lance Burton has received numerous awards and accolades from his peers. In 1980, he was the first magician to be awarded the gold medal from the International Brotherhood of Magicians. In 1982, he was the first American and youngest magician to win the Grand Prix World Championship of Magic from the Federation Internationale Societies des Magiques. The Academy of Magical Arts, AMA, has honored Lance Burton with awards many times, including Best Stage Magician of the Year twice, the Master Fellowship in the Vegas Review Journal, Best of Las Vegas Reader's Poll, and Lance was voted Best Magician 12 years in a row, a feat unequaled to this day, ever. Today, Lance Burton is happily retired and lives quietly in a fucking castle here <laughs> in Las Vegas. He spends his time supporting a number of charities, including Nevada SPCA, Heaven Can Wait Animal Society, Variety Children's Charity, and the Shriners Children's Hospital. He mentors young magicians. I know many of them who say he is the most unbelievably generous and wonderful person to them. And he has also taken up a hobby of filmmaking He's currently working on a number of documentary and narrative film projects, including Billy Toppett, Master Magician, which will mark his debut as a film director, which premiered at one of the film festivals here in the country and won six different awards. It's unbelievable. He also worked on the film Oz, The Great and Powerful, as a magical advisor, and he taught magic to James Franco, who he now considers to be his number one student. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my friend and a legend, one of the most unbelievable magician and one of the most extraordinary men I know, Lance Burton. Wow, what an intro. And, and for those of you who, who aren't familiar with the terminology, when, when, when they say legend, that's code for old guy. Let me tell you something, okay? If I lived in this house <laughs> and I invited a girl over, 
if I couldn't get any action, I might as well just hang up my junk and retire. It's all over for me. Well, this I built this house. I tell you the story behind this behind this house. <clears throat> this land uh, was owned by a friend of mine. Well, first of all, as you said, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and and I spent a lot of time on my grandfather's farm when I was a kid. So I'm, at heart, I'm a country boy. So I like living out in the country, uh, in the r- rural section. So. So where I was living in Las Vegas on the east side of town for many years, that was out in the sticks. There were people that had horses out there, and it was open desert. But as Las Vegas grew and grew and grew, the city sort of grew around me. Well, about about 2001, a friend of mine owned this land, and, and, and it was way out in the, in the desert. And he said, hey, I want to sell this land. Why don't you take a look at it? And I came out here, and it was 10 acres, and it was like a little hill. And I, I was thinking, oh, my God, this is the most beautiful site in Nevada because back behind me is all uh, uh, owned by the BLM, Bureau of Land Management. That's all government land back there. So it's like a wilderness area. And then on the other side, we can, we can see downtown Las Vegas and, the, and the, uh, the north end of the Strip. And I just saw this, this site, and I this is gorgeous, and and uh, it's 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 out away from the from the town. You know, I mean, it's out it's out. It, you know, I'm back out living in the country, so I I bought the land from him and 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 built this house. How long did it take you from cradle to grave, from your first meeting with an architect until you moved in? It was a it was a long process. It was it was like five or six years. Six years. Yeah, because uh, I think I I've been in this house now ten years, so it was like 2006, I think. How much time did the builders tell you it was going to take? Well, we didn't we didn't really have an estimate, but you know I didn't think it was going to take that long. But you know for the longest time, there's nothing happening. It's just they, they dig a hole, <laughs> and then you don't really see anything happening because they're bringing you know pipes and electrical things up. Digging. It's a lot of digging the first the first couple of years. So what's your favorite thing about the house 10 years later right now that you love? And what's the thing that you walk around, you say, what was I thinking? I, I, I still I love the view, the mountains, especially in the winter when they little get a little snow on the mountaintops. It's just gorgeous. And you can see the city, especially at night. You can see the lights of Las Vegas. Um the one thing, though, the one thing, though, is is there is a lot of uh, electronic, you know, automatic. You can open the gates automatically and, and the TVs and and everything. So, but if you ever if that goes down, then you're screwed. <laughs> you know, we had a uh, we had uh, last week that the power went out. I guess in the whole neighborhood for a little while. <laughs> I couldn't do anything. You know, you couldn't you couldn't turn the TV. You couldn't leave. <laughs> That part's crazy. It's just so good to see you so happy and so fulfilled. I want to ask you something because I talked a lot about my cold open, how you get to the next level and how things happen as an artist. And I'd actually like you to explain how it's possible that you go and you work so hard to get that first Tonight Show appearance where you've been working on that 12 minutes forever. Oh, yeah. Just like a musical artist is working on the first album. But for you, you're just working on that first 12 minutes. It's just 
is going to kill, but you don't really have anything. Yeah, you have card tricks, but you don't want to roll out with card tricks because your peers will look at you like, okay, the guy did a $5 trick from a magic shop. Was there a strategic thing for you in going into the Follies Bergere as a guest set, I imagine for a shorter set on that, to a long-term plan? Sure, yeah. When I I first moved out west in 81 and did my first Tonight Show, the act that I was doing, the birds, the cards, the candles, the floating ball, I mean, that was my act. And that's what I had spent my, my youth, my, my, my teenage years working on. And I did a lot of shows. Um, uh, my friend Matt King and I had a summer job. Uh, when I was uh, like a senior in high school or going to college. In Louisville. In, 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 in a little place about 100, 150 miles from Louisville and, uh, in, called Tombstone Junction. It was a little, that was the name of the park. It was a little theme park. It's one of these uh, uh, like Western towns. They had, they had a sheriff and deputies and they had bank robbers that would come in three times a day to rob the bank and they would have a shootout. And they had an outdoor stage where they had country music. And it was down at Cumberland Falls, Kentucky, and in the middle of a national forest. And they had a little snack uh, place called the Red Garter Saloon, where you could get uh, hamburgers, fries, Coca-Cola, potato chips. People would come in there, and they'd get their lunch, and they'd sit down. We would do a magic show. So we were doing three shows a day, seven days a week, all summer long. So that's 21 shows a week. So, you know, you go and you do all summer – you knock out 300 shows. And and we did, I did that three summers in a row. And so you're making an average of how much a show. I mean, we were paid, this was back in, in, in the early 80s. So I think, I'm trying to remember now, I think it was probably turned out to be maybe $20 a show. But you did 21 shows. Yeah, we did 21 shows a week. So you're making about 500 a week. Yeah, I think, no, I don't think we were making that much. I think we were making, I think we got 350 a week. The split between the two of us. Got it. And and they and they gave us a little uh, little house trailer to stay in. How far does one hundred and seventy five dollars a week get you in the Louisville, Kentucky? That was big money back then. You know, so you were living the dream. We, we we could have been out mowing lawns or delivering papers or. How did you afford the birds for your eggs? The birds. Oh, you know what we did though. Here's what we did. We 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 found a guy that would take our eight by ten photos and print them up on kind of cheap paper so we could get them for like two cents a piece. Then at the end of our show, we would come out on stage with a little briefcase with those photos and we would sell them to, to the people to get an autographed photo. No, people didn't know who we were, but they'd just seen our show. So the kids would all run up, you know, it was a dollar a piece. And so we would come out after every show and we would sell these eight by 10 photos and we would sign them to the, it was mainly, you know, that was our grocery money. Incredible. That was that was what we lived on, so we could save the rest of our money. Now we know what kind of act you did because you just explained it. What kind of act did Matt do? Matt King is is now is a headliner over at Harris Hotel here in Las Vegas. He does an afternoon show, and uh, he's one of the top magicians in the world, and 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 uh, you know my favorite magician uh, working today. Uh, Mac uh, does comedy and magic. So it was a talk. So it was a it was a good show because we complimented each other. I was doing the the sort of classic magic manipulation with, without any talking, and Mac was the 
the guy that did the talking in the comedy. So did Mac ever roll out with a trick and you're like, listen, pal, um, that's a little similar to mine. No, we, we actually, we actually helped each other with our acts. Um, you know, and, and, and we do our three shows during the day, but we would always be tweaking, trying out new ideas. And I, if I had an idea for Mac, I would say, Hey, try this next show and vice versa. So it was really, it was really a great learning environment because we were both there to work on our act. Were you doing the bird? And I say birds, they're not even birds that you do. They're like, I mean, they're like monstrous geese. Oh no, no, that was later. That came later. Birds. These were the dove, the doves. Doves. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so so it's easy to afford doves. Sure. Yeah. Although we did have a we did have a duck one summer. Uh, that was the first time I ever worked with a duck. We decided for some reason we wanted to have a duck in the act, and we went out and bought baby ducks and raised them. And uh, people like ducks. They're just fun animals. Tell me the first time a bird died that you were taking care of. Oh, that's always sad when you lose an animal. Because, you know, you get, they're not, they're, 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 they're much, much more than, you know, props. If you're using the animals in your act, they're, they're your pets. And they're your, you know, you work with them every day and, and, and you're around them all the time. Um, uh, many, many times uh, I'd be sitting around at home and people, I can't tell you, I've lost count how many times will people say, what's that noise? And I'll go, what? What noise? That noise. I don't hear, it's the birds cooing. I don't hear them anymore because it's just, I've lived with them since I was 14 years old. So I've just kind of tuned them out, but other people hear them. But yeah, uh, in the wild, uh, a dove will live, uh, I think, an average of maybe five to seven years. Um my birds are some of them now are, you know, going on twenty five years old, uh, between twenty five and thirty years old. Uh, so they're all they're all they're all here at the house. They're all retired too. Well, the reason why they live is because they're living inside the mansion, yeah. not out in the yeah. wild. Yeah, but you know, they, but that was I was always I'm always been very very adamant about working with animals that you take care of them. If you're using if you have a pet or you have a an animal in your act, that's your responsibility. You're responsible for making sure they have food and clean water and good living conditions and veterinarian care and, and that they're happy and healthy. Now imagine just there's all different kinds of magicians. There's all different kinds of people with all different kinds of character. So have you ever in your career seen a magician who treated his animals without respect and without care and how yeah, did you handle I, things? Yeah, that, that always, yeah, that always, that makes me angry when I see that. Uh, and you don't see it really very often. I think the vast majority of magicians that work with animals are very, very careful and very, very loving and take care of their animals. But if you do see it, yeah, that, that makes me angry. And I think I get that from my dad. Uh, my dad was a great guy and uh, very mellow, but there's only two things that would make him mad. And, and if you got mad, watch out, because you didn't want to be on the receiving end. Uh, he didn't like seeing animals mistreated, and he didn't like seeing children mistreated. Those are the two things that would, that would piss him off, and, and I'm, I'm exactly the same. 
So I want to just go back to this thing here. So you're working on this act. You got this 12-minute act. You're perfecting it. And so when you finally do The Tonight Show, right. you're ready. Yeah. And we all know what happened. It was amazing. But then you decide to go into the Follies Bergere. I'm sure that you were probably offered something bigger than that. No, the Follies was the perfect offer, and that's what I was waiting for. And I t- here's, here's what I'll tell you that I always tell young magicians, because they always want to come up and say, how do you, you know, get on TV? How do you get your own show? How do you do that? How do you do that? And I always say, okay, slow down. First of all, when I think back on my career, my life, when I walked out on stage uh, at the Tonight Show, Johnny Carson, and did my act on television for the first time, I had done that act 1,000 times in front of a live audience. I had done approximately 1,000 performances of that act in front of strangers. So when I walked out on The Tonight Show, the act was, was there. It was polished, and it was, it, was, you know, it, was a, it was a good, solid, you know, professional act. And this is what I tell the young magicians. I said, that's what your first goal is. Put your act together and make it, make it good, make it creative, put all, work on it all the time, and work on doing a 1,000 performances. You got to get that out of the way first. You got to get that under your belt. A 1,000 shows. That's your first goal. And that's, and that's, that's what I did. And then, and I continued to work, you know, and, and, but it was, it was being on the tonight show that got me my offer to come to Las Vegas to the Tropicana hotel in the Follies Brigier. Now that was the perfect job for me because that spot, that's what they wanted. 10, 12 minute act. And that's what I had. So I knew I could come to Vegas and I could, and I could open my show. Now, once I got to Vegas, and it also gave me financial stability. I had a gig and, and I could pay my rent and I could now I could settle in. I could work on a big stage and I could work on other material. Because I looked up and down the strip, there was Siegfried and Roy. They had just opened their own show at the Frontier Hotel. And, and they had other headlining magicians that would come in to Las Vegas. Doug Henning was uh, at, the, at the, uh, the Hilton Hotel. And at the Bally's Hotel, uh, once or twice a year. So, so that was my next goal. I said, "Okay, I'm in Vegas, and I've got a gig. That's great. Now, I want to make the jump from being a review show act to doing my own show because I had some things in my head that I felt I could could apply to that." How do you figure out how you're going to build the hour? What's the process for you to where you feel you're ready? One trick at a time, one, one number at a time, one, one joke at a time, one, one magic trick at a time. So you'd have your 12-minute act, then you'd create a new piece. Let's right. say it's three minutes long. My next piece of material that I developed was the sword fight, which I used after that to close my, my show with for many, many, many years, all the rest of my career. And that was a that was a routine where I had a sword, and I would get a guy up from the audience and have him select a card, and I would stab, throw the cards in the air and stab it, and that was his card. Then the evil sword fighting guy with the mask, and he's right over there by the fireplace now. <laughs> the evil sword fighting guy would come out on stage, and we would have this whole duel, and uh, and 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 uh, it would look like he was got the best of me and killed me, but then I disappeared, and then the sword fighting guy. 
spun around to look where I went, and then he would take off the mask, and it's me inside the sword fighting outfit. So it was a good, it was a good solid ending to the act. So that was the second, the second routine that I put together while I was in Vegas, and that took two years. That took two, two or three years of really hard work to put that three and a half minutes together. Did you? Obviously, when you put together your first 12 minutes, you didn't have a consultant. Right. You didn't have anybody helping you. It was right. just you. You right. bounced things off of Mac King. Yeah. But you didn't have anybody. When you were out here, you made money and the sword fighting routine, did you hire a consultant? I, well, I had other friends that helped, that gave me ideas and stuff. And, I, and yes, and I worked with my friend Johnny Thompson, the great Tom Sony, that we worked uh, together on the sword fight, uh, and, and Johnny's older than me and has more experience and, and is, was very, very helpful and very instrumental. And Johnny and I had a, had a very long relationship uh, working on material. He helped me with a lot of the material in my show and in the TV specials. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's the other advantage is being out west being able to have access to people like Johnny Thompson that are going to help you with your stuff. Explain to our audience how a magic consultant gets taken care of. In other words, if it's Elton John and Bernie Taupin, they write a song together and they share 50% of the royalties of the publishing, not the actual singing. That's something different. But when a consultant does something, is it a situation where they make a flat fee and that's it and they're done? Or do they make something in perpetuity? Well, it's kind of, it, it can kind of be all, all of the above. For instance, Johnny Thompson. Johnny is still, I just saw him, I just saw him the other day, uh, is still uh, working. He's 82 years old. He doesn't perform anymore, but he consults. He works with Penn and Teller on an ongoing basis now. At least once a week, he, he goes over and they have rehearsals and he helps them with their material. And, um, and for, for many years, he was kind of my on-staff guy. So he, in other words, when you do a deal at a hotel, you build a budget in and there's a salary for the magic. Consultant. Right, right. So I paid him for many years. I paid him as my as my consultant and he would come in uh, once a week and watch the show and work with me on new new things. Um and he, he does he does that as I say now for Penn and Teller, but he also worked he's worked in the past for Siegfried and Roy. He's worked for Chris Angel. He does kind of one off things where guys are working on a, a trick or a show, and they'll bring him in for two or three weeks just to 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 to, to work on a specific project. Now you know how there's certain comedy writers and. They'll write an amazing joke for, let's say, Chris Rock is doing the Academy Awards. A writer comes in, writes a joke, and he'll be like, God, this is such a great joke, but it's not my tone. I can't use that one. And then that writer might work for another comedian, and he presents that joke to them, and they love it. Was there ever a situation where your magic consultant presented an idea for you that he thought would be great for you, and you were like, you know, that's just really not my lane, and then he presented it to another magician, and it became a huge part of their act. Uh, that I, I, I suppose that's possible. I don't. I, nothing pops to the front of my mind uh, re- regarding that scenario. Um, yes, yeah, sometimes, sometimes a magic consultant will, like you say, will come up with an idea. But, but generally, what happens is 
the artist will have an idea. He'll say, you know, I, I, I have this trick in my, I want to do this escape. Let's say it's an escape. I didn't do that many escapes in my career. Most I did some, but mostly on television. I saw one that you did on television where you were tied to a roller coaster okay. train track. Now, that's a good, that's a good example because that was Johnny's idea. Johnny, uh, years ago, before, before I opened at the Monte Carlo, I think, he was hired to be a, a magic consultant for a television special in Japan. They had a female escape artist uh, who was from Las Vegas. They flew her to Japan, and they shot a whole, a whole hour TV special of, of her doing escapes. And, and a lot of it was at this amusement park because they wanted to, that was one of their sponsors, I think, for the TV show. So they did a lot of location shooting in the amusement park. So, so Johnny came up with this thing where she was chained in front of a roller coaster tracks and had to escape before the coaster ran over and Johnny came back, and he, he had a videotape, and he showed me the show. And I saw this roller coaster escape, and I was like, oh, <laughs> that's crazy, Johnny. And then, so then a few years later, I would, I would, when I started doing my TV specials, Johnny was working with me on the special. And every year, Johnny would say, Lance, you know what you ought to do? You ought to do my roller coaster escape. <laughs> I would say, no, I don't think so, John. But then after about three or four years, he talked me into it. So that was actually, that actually came from Johnny. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. One of the things I want to ask you, you mentioned you a thousand hours you need to put in. And these days, recently, for instance, a magician that I know did the Ellen show. Yeah. And you'll see other magicians do other shows and you'll get the call as a magician from Fallon or from the Ellen show. And it's like, we want you to come on. And a lot of the magicians have done a lot of their best stuff. So yeah. then they kill themselves with a magic insult and they only have like a week oh, yeah. to put something together. They try it out for their friends. They can't possibly do it a thousand times. Yeah, sure. And you'll see them in the dressing room and they'll be going over the trick over and over and over again. Sure. Whether it involves electronics or whatever it is. And sometimes I'm privy to those situations and I think to myself, 
Please stop trying that out. Please stop trying that out. Yeah, how many times can you flip a coin and it's going to go and say, feels like you keep doing it and it works and then you're going to get out there. It doesn't work. Yeah, I got to keep trying. I got to keep doing it. And I remember watching you on Chris Angel's first season and he was doing a routine where he was up on some kind of a crane in oh. some kind of a barrel. Yeah, the wine barrel escape. The yeah. wine barrel escape. And the whole thing is it opens up, falls open, he drops about 15 feet. And I saw you on that show and I called you up immediately and I said, Lance, I'm going to say something to you that might come across the wrong way. I said, I know you're a great actor, but I saw fear in your face and I know you weren't acting. No, no. Why would Chris Angel put fear in your face? <laughs> And your heart and your mind. And you said, Barry, because the show is low budget. He wants to do things that are different and extraordinary. He wants to take risks. He's probably practiced this only a few times. And I'm watching this and I know in my mind that he could die. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, he wasn't 15 feet off the ground. He was like 70 or 80 feet off the ground. He, he was higher than you want to fall. I mean, it would have been, if you fell from that height, it, you know, there's no question you would be, you would be dead. So, so the gag was, he was in, he's locked inside this wine barrel and the, the barrel is lifted up in the air and, and, and he, has, he reaches out through a hole in the barrel and unlocks the lock and he gets out of the barrel and then the barrel drops and smashes in the ground and so and so and then but what what we didn't know was chris once he got out of the barrel he had hooked on a little safety line onto his onto his belt and then he let go and now he falls he free falls 80 feet and and you don't see you can't see the wire until the last like fifteen feet when the when the wire slows him down and he lands. So so when he falls, at first you're looking up, going, Oh, he's escaped, and then you see him fall and you're going, Oh my God, he's falling. And you think, Oh, I'm gonna see I'm gonna see a guy die right here in front of me. But then at the last second, you know, he had the safety wire on him. So that was all it was all very exciting. Uh, but the thing about it was there was no rehearsal. That was the rehearsal. They were on a very tight shooting schedule because they were shooting a whole season of Mind Freak, uh, and 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 they were just out shooting. There was no rehearsal. It was it was it was. He figured out a way to combine the elements of a magic show with the elements of a reality show. So you had all this behind the scenes stuff. So that was the drama. That was it was that that was the part of the reality show. You were seeing him do this for the first time. But you were scared. Yeah, I was scared. I was seeing him do it for the first time. It was it was very scary. I thought he was for a few seconds. I thought, oh, no, this is it. He's going to die. Have you ever seen a magician or an escapologist die or permanently injured by a trick? No, I, I no, not not live. But there's videos out there. There's a trick which I do not like. <laughs> and it's a very popular trick. I would never perform this trick. I don't like to see this trick because of the subject matter. And what it is, is you have a, a, a spike or a very large nail on a 
on a little metal base so you can set it on the table. So this big, big giant nail is pointing straight up in the air. And then you take three paper bags and you take one of the bags and you cover the nail and the other two bags you set on either side. Then the magician turns his back and the spectator is allowed to mix the bags up. So then when the magician turns around, he doesn't know which, which bag the nail is under. But he takes his hand and he smashes the bag and crushes it up. And said, well, it wasn't under that one. And then he does it a second time and crushes that one up. It wasn't under that one. And then he lifts the third one up and there's, there's the spike under it sticking up. So you get the, you get the, it's a dangerous trick. So if you, if you smash the wrong bag, that nail can go right through your hand. Well, that's exactly what's happened on more than once there's there's videos out there on youtube of these guys that that were doing this trick this is why i don't like the trick i just don't like the idea of the whole thing uh, i'm i'm a little squeamish when it comes to that kind of stuff but there's videos out there of guys smashing their a spike through their hand what's the most dangerous trick you've ever performed well the the dangerous ones were uh, went for television shows. I did some escapes. I did the roller coaster escape, which you, which you talked about earlier. Um, were you I did, scared when you were doing it? Yeah, I was scared on that one. I was scared on the buried alive. Now the buried alive. I've seen people almost die from that. Yeah, that was that's right. And and the buried alive. What the trick was originally conceived by Harry Houdini as an escape back in the 1920s. There was a guy who was performing in the United States. He was from India. He was one of these, what they call a fakir, one of these guys that sits in a lotus position and can you know, control his heartbeat. Well, anyway, his, his big act was he was, he was put in a coffin, and then, they, and then they would dump mounds of earth on top of him, and he was buried alive, and they left him there for you know, 45 minutes. And, and the idea was there's only, there's only two minutes of air in the coffin, but because he, he's able to meditate and control his heartbeat, he's going to stay in there for half an hour or 40 minutes. Well, Houdini saw this and, and he thought, you know, this guy's not really meditating. He's just, you know, staying still and controlling his breathing. So Houdini decided he was going to get in on this. And so he he had a coffin and, and they put it in a pool, swimming pool underwater. He stayed in for like an hour, hour and 15 minutes. So, so the next thing Houdini thinks, he gets a lot of publicity on this. So the next thing he thinks is, oh, this was a good idea. I'm going to do this as, a, as an escape. And, and he had a poster made of the escape. He was, he was going to use this in his 1927 uh, tour. And the idea was the coffin was going to be brought out on stage and was going to be put inside of a giant glass box and then tons of sand dump. And, 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 and now he's going to escape from the coffin and have to dig his way out live on stage. And he actually rehearsed the trick and they actually found evidence that he actually performed it for a week because there was advertisements that they recently discovered. They just don't know what city it was in. But anyway, he died in 1926, so he never actually got to perform him. Uh, but, but since that time, there have been a number of magicians who've performed The Buried Alive. Uh, but I did it on television special back in the mid-90s. And we shot it out at the Valley of Fire, not far from Las Vegas, out in the desert. Um, but that was really... 
uh, intense because there were very sharp rocks in earth. So anyway, I was I was in the coffin and it was I was in chains and it was buried, and then they there was a bulldozer that dumped earth and they filled it all in and and I had to dig up out of the out of the ground. So so I had cuts on my arm from all these sharp because you know that's again that's a trick that you don't want to rehearse if you want if you're going to do it you should just roll the cameras because you don't want to you don't want to have to rehearse it and then do it uh, but that was pretty intense uh, I did the upside down straight jacket escape uh, on a TV special and I did uh, I was in a straight jacket in a tank of water and that was intense being underwater were you upside down? No, I was right side up, but it was a very small tank. It was very constricting, but just the whole idea of being underwater and having to hold your breath while an audience is watching you. It's, it's a very surreal feeling. Houdini, one of the taglines that people say, the historians, the way he drew audiences was they came to see him die. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And back then there was no social media there was nothing. He would have to come to the town a week earlier, hanging by the crane with a straight jacket or sure. a box going into the river. And that's how he would say, hey, I'm performing over there. He was at the box office. He was, he, was the, he was the Kardashians of his time. <laughs> he was the Donald Trump of his time. He was, uh, he was the P.T. Barnum before P.T. Barnum was around. Incredible. Let's go way, way back. Let's talk about where you were actually born, the kind of place you grew up in Kentucky, and what the socioeconomic dynamic was, and if you had other family members, if your parents were still together, and how you were raised, and then what was the first inspiration for you to want to be a magician? Uh, well, I was born in Louisville, Kentucky. My parents, uh, Bill Burton and Hilma Burton, they were born there in Kentucky, and they grew up on the farm, you know, in the south central part of Kentucky, uh, out in the r rural area. And they both literally grew up on farms where there were cows and cornfields. So you grew up on a farm. Well, I grew up mainly in Louisville in the suburbs, middle middle class uh, neighborhood in the suburbs. But I spent a lot of time on my grandfather's farm on my dad's side and my grandmother's uh, farm on my, from my mom's side. Uh, we would go down to the farms on the weekends and I spent a lot of time in the summer down there and I had a lot of cousins. Um, so so I, I, I got to see what it was like working on the farm. I mean, it was a, and, and I still, uh, the farm is, is uh, now I, my sister and I own, own the farm, it was my grandfather's farm. And I have a house that I built there which I'm eventually moving back to. Um, and, and there's still cows there. When and, you say you're eventually moving back there, you're going to leave this palatial mansion. Yeah, moving, moving, back to the, moving back to the farm. Well, it's about 100 miles from Louisville. I mean, it's, it's way out in the... So you really are actually considering leaving this and going to... Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm moving. When would you do that? Uh, sometime in the next couple of years. And what would you do with this place? Well, it's maybe available by then. Maybe you're... <laughs> 
Maybe you'll move to Vegas. I don't know if I can afford this yeah, place. Yeah, well, I, I don't know even think got, I can afford this room. I know you got that last comic standing money. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, so you're growing up there, so you're kind of poor growing up. Well, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say poor. I mean, I think we always had something to eat, and uh, we always had, you know, fresh, f- fresh food from the farm, uh, if nothing else, but. Uh, my mom and dad both worked blue-collar jobs. My dad worked at a building supply company, and my mom worked at the Frito-Lay plant making potato chips. Um, so we, like I said, we grew up, I grew up in Louisville in the suburbs, and um, my first, the first time I ever saw a magic show was, uh, I was five years old, and it was the employee's Christmas party for the Frito-Lay plant. So my mom worked at the plant making potato chips and they had a Christmas party for all the employees and they had a they had a man that worked there who was at that time was the sales manager and his name was Harry Collins and Harry was from Glasgow, Kentucky and he was a terrific magician, uh, exceptional magician and he was doing a magic show for the Christmas party for all the employees and um, he asked for a volunteer from the audience. And of course, all of the kids raised their hand. Every kid wanted to go up on stage to help with the magic show. And, but I was the kid he pointed to. And I went up on stage and he started doing this trick where he pulled silver dollars out from behind my ear. And I was totally uh, amazed and awestruck. And, uh, and, but I have, to, I have to explain, I didn't understand what I was seeing. I thought that it was real. I didn't understand it was a trick. I thought that somehow there was money behind my ears and I just hadn't noticed it. And for the next week, every day I would get up and I would look in the mirror and I would, <laughs> I would check my ears and I would, I would check my hair and I, I just couldn't understand it. And then finally somebody must have explained to me that, you know, the man doesn't really have magic powers. It was a skill, and so that was my that was my introduction to magic, and it made a it made a big big impact on me, and uh, and I was interested in magic. Anytime there was a magic show, I wanted to see it. How many magic shows are there coming through well, the not, suburbs of Lexington, Kentucky? Yeah, there, there, there aren't there aren't many magic shows back then. You know, you you were lucky if you saw a magician on television once a year. That was a big deal to see a magic uh, performance on TV or live. You, that was the thing. But I was always searching to, to, to find uh, magic. And, and uh, eventually, I must have, I must have been really, uh, really into it uh, because the next door neighbor, uh, the, the lady who lived next door to us, uh, her name was Jane, and she would babysit my sister and I sometimes. We called her Aunt Jane, and she noticed that I was really interested in magic. And one day she came over to the house, and she had in her hands a book. And the name of the book was Magic Made Easy. And the book had belonged to one of her kids who were now grown. But she must have noticed how interested I was with magic because she found this book at home. She brought it over and gave it to me. And now a whole new world opened up to me because up until that point, I didn't know anything. How did you, how do you learn magic? But now I under, I I understood that there are things 
called magic books where you could you could you could learn how the tricks work and you could learn how to perform them and that started me off really on my education i would go to the library at school i would go to the public library and i would always search for magic books and that's that's how how you learn in the beginning and so when do you start practicing tricks how old are you oh right away i was, I was like five or six years old and what was the first trick that you successfully performed oh, that tricked people oh boy i don't that's that's a good question you know when i was when i was like maybe seven or eight i think i got a magic set for christmas one of these little, you know, they have them at the toy stores. It's like a whole box full of tricks with instructions. It was probably something out of the magic set. One of my kids, first thing that they mastered, they love magic. One of my sons does the trick where you have the blue mat and you have a quarter on each oh, uh, yeah. thing. And you have a card and you keep going. And by the end, you have four quarters underneath. Under your, the one card? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the first thing he really mastered. Yeah, great. The thing that I think my other kid mastered first was the one where you let the person predict what's a black card and what's a red card. Oh, yeah, out of this world. And then all the red cards are on one side and all the black cards on another. The coin trick's called uh, Matrix, and the one with the cards with the different the colors, black and red, that's called Out of This World. That was the first trick that my uncle did for me, who was the expert on Houdini, that just blew ah, me away. And Sid. when I saw my nine-year-old son do it, I'm like, oh, my God. I, I love Sid. Your uncle was such a great guy. He really was a wonderful man. Your he, uncle and I, you know, your uncle, when he, when he auctioned off his Houdini collection, uh, your uncle and I did a live satellite interview on one of the morning shows. What was the Today Show or Good Morning America, one of those shows from New York. And we were here in Vegas. And so I sort of had to translate because for Sid because he was he was a little hard of hearing and he was like ninety yeah he was he was an he was an elderly man and and we both had little IFBs you know in our ears yeah these are the things in your ear where somebody talks to you from the producers something of that nature so so the uh, the, I think the lady interviewing viewing us was Ann Curry and so we couldn't see her of course we're just looking at a camera they had a cameraman there in front of us. But she could see us. She was in New York. So she asked me a question, and I answered it. And then, and then she asked Sid, Sid a question, and, and Sid couldn't, couldn't hear. And Sid's going, what? And, and she repeats the question, and then Sid looks at me. And, and so I had, to, I had to relay the question to Sid. I think, it was, you know, I think the question was, was you know, why, why did you decide to sell your collection at this time? So she asked the question. I said, yes, she wants to know why you're selling the collection. <laughs> and he goes, oh, yes, yes. And then he gave his answer. So it was, it was just really, it was just a really great moment with Sid and I because I was, I felt very protective of him. I, your, he, your uncle was such a sweet man. I appreciate it. My uncle always used to tell me these stories that you would believe were him. Just always fool me. There was a comedian named Kenny Rogerson, and he had this great routine where he'd say, I had a horrible day today. It's just, my girlfriend was killed. I go down the morgue to identify the body. They pull out the drawer. She pops up. Happy birthday, Kenny. (laughs) I just said to myself, I can't believe I fell for this again. (laughs) (laughs) And with Sid, he'd say these things and you'd be riveted. Like the last story he told me, he said, 
Hey, Barry, let me tell you the story. I was just taking the bus. I was in uh, Las Vegas. I took the bus, and I was sitting in the handicap seat, and there's the bus is packed. And this gorgeous, gorgeous showgirl comes on the bus. She's in high heels. She's wearing this little tiny dress all the way up. So beautiful. And I felt so bad. I said, listen, if you want, you can sit on my lap. I'm only going two stops. I'm an old man. Just sit on my lap. It's okay. And so she sat on my lap. And then one stop later, I tapped her on the shoulder. I said, uh, miss, I'm sorry. You're going to have to get up. And she looked at me, she said, what are you talking about? You told me I could sit on your lap. You're only going a few stops. You were an old guy. And he looked at her and he said, yeah, I, I just realized I'm, I'm not as old as I thought I was. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm riveted thinking that. And then I realized, oh, he's just telling me a joke. He's telling me a joke. <laughs> Unbelievable. So now, now your uncle actually actually knew Houdini's brother. Hardeen. Hardeen. Yes. And, and was and was Hardeen he was Hardeen's protege? Yes. And I don't what I don't understand is that if you had a brother who was the most famous magician in the world. Oh yeah. And he dies and you have everything of his, the yeah. water torture case, yeah. handcuffs, locks. Why would you just give it to somebody even if he's a friend, why don't you just keep it or just hold it in a storage facility? He gave everything to my uncle. Yeah. That's cool. But he, but he, he, he but, 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 but was this near the end of Hardeen's life when he gave it to your uncle? Or? I think so, yeah. But still, it's crazy, you know, for the, my uncle all through my life, he owned the water torture case at the auction where I produced that show. I actually bought Houdini's will and testament. Oh, really? Nice. My uncle told me that the things that are really of value that the people at auctions don't think are valuable right. are letters and things. They're looking at the artwork or sure. the milk can or sure. the, the water torture case. They're not looking at a letter a will and so i remember i got that and i bid for it and got it and i got one of houdini's original handcuffs that he made for himself the ah. silver ones there's only three of them i got one of those ah. so i was really happy about that it was a great event so you know but you, did you ever hear that did anybody tell you the story about hardeen's like uh, locks mm -hmm. a friend of friend of mine who's passed on uh now jay marshall from chicago uh, knew Hardeen in New York when Jay lived in New York, and uh, he said that Hardeen, if when Hardeen uh, was hard up for money, he would go down to this uh, particular hardware store in New York, and he would just buy, you know, a bucket full of locks and keys and things, and then he would go out and sell it, telling people it was Houdini's. <laughs> So, so whenever, whenever people have, you know, have, have, have locks or keys or something and they say it was Houdini's, you're always a little suspect because it was apparently Hardeen. That's how he got, when he, when he was hard up for money, that's how he got extra money. He would buy this stuff, you know, like basically from the junk store and then tell people that it belonged to his brother. So you're doing these tricks as at five and six and seven. Sure. And then that's how you built up to getting where you were. To do the shows when you were a teenager yeah so then when i was like 10 or 12 it was actually harry collins the first magician i ever saw he he took notice of my interest in magic because my mom would go to harry at, at work at frito-lay and she said hey my you know my son lance he really loves this magic stuff and and uh, for his birthday you know he says he wants magic and i don't know what to get him and harry would say oh don't worry i'll show you and he would find you know really great books on magic or, 
uh, you know, steered, steered my education in the right direction. And then Harry, at Harry's suggestion, he said, you know, when I was about 10 or 12, he said, you, you should start performing at birthday parties. And I was like, really? Said, yeah, you could, you know, back then, you know, you could get five or ten dollars to do a show for a kid's birthday party. And, uh, you know, you could go out Saturday and, 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 and mow, you know, a kid uh, at that time, you know, your only job uh, opportunity was mowing, lo mowing lawns. You could go mow a lawn and take an hour. You might get paid, you know, two or three dollars or five dollars. So it was a lot more fun to go out and do a magic show at, at a children's birthday party. I mowed lawns. Yeah, you mowed, we all mowed lawns. You should have you should have taken a magic. I know I, I'd have a house like this. So skipping forward, we know you did the show. Is I don't know why, but I just am fascinated by this. Getting the call for your first break for the Tonight Show. Oh yeah. Could you explain how they found you? Take us through the I'll process of preparing for it, and take us through the day of the rehearsal, and right before the curtain opens when you're introduced, doing the show. And then Johnny goes, okay, and then walking out. Take me through that whole thing. That, that, so first of all, <clears throat> when I was back, so, so let's see how to, how to start this off. So there was a series of events that led me to the stage of The Tonight Show. So, so in 19, start, it start, and it started a year before. Uh, in 1980, the International Brotherhood of Magicians um, at their at their annual convention, they they instituted this uh, gold medal competition, and what they wanted to do is they wanted to put on a competition, magic competition, and they wanted to make it a, a, a prestigious event and and make it an international competition. So they created this award called the gold medal competition. It was actually a gold medal on a ribbon, like like you get at the Olympics, and. Um, and they had the they had the first competition in 1980, and I went and competed. I was 20 years old, and I won the gold medal. So, so they give so you know that was a big honor. And then, and how many magicians were there? Uh, there's probably over a thousand magicians at the convention, but competing, I'm not sure. Probably, maybe 30 or 40 or they and, had several days of competition. So I don't I don't. And when you went in though, did you go in saying? I'm going to win this competition. No, I just went in saying I'm going to compete. So you had no idea how good you were. Well, but the but the thing I had on my side was Mac and I were working at Tombstone Junction. So we were doing two shows a day, seven days a week. So when I took off for a couple of days to go to this competition, the act was tight. You know, I'd been doing it twice a day. So anyway, I win the competition and and the next year they invite me back to the convention as a paid performer. And, uh, and they held the second gold medal competition and they brought me on, I think to open the, the thing or close the thing, I can't remember, but here was the guy that won the gold medal last year and I did my act. Well, at that performance was a guy named Bill Larson. Bill and his brother Milt formed the Magic Castle out in Hollywood, California. And Bill saw me at that show, and he contacted me a couple weeks later and, and, and hired me to come out to Los Angeles. Uh, Bill and Milt 
did these shows, and they still do. Milt, Bill passed on it several years ago. Milt is still doing these shows in L.A. It's called the It's Magic Show, and it became an it's an annual event that's been going on for like sixty years now. And they bring magicians in from all over the world, some of the top acts from around the world, and they do this big show in a theater in L.A. So they hire me to come out to L.A. to do the It's Magic Show. Well, each year they try to get one of the acts on The Tonight Show to help promote this, this uh, two-week run at the theater. So the star of the show in 1981 was a magician from Peru named Ricciardi, terrific illusionist. And uh, by all rights, he should have been the guy that got on The Tonight Show. So they called up The Tonight Show, and they said, we want to get one of our acts, if we can, on the show so we can promote the It's Magic Show. And the star this year is the great Peruvian illusionist Ricciardi. And The Tonight Show, the producer at The Tonight Show said, you know, we just had Doug Henning on last week doing illusions. What else do you have? And then uh, Milt says to them, well, we also have this kid from Kentucky who just won this gold medal, this international award, and he does a sleight of hand act with cards and birds and candles. And the, the producer at The Tonight Show says, okay, we'll take him. Was that Jim McCauley? It was Jim McCauley. Legendary producer of The Tonight Show. So, so Jim, uh, I get to L.A., and Jim comes to see the preview show. We were doing a, a couple of nights of previews before we opened. So we opened. The opening night of It's Magic was October 28th, which was the same day as, I, as my Tonight Show appearance. So Jim comes to see preview night, which was October 27th. And now I go out on stage. Now, no one in L.A. had seen me. None of the magicians had seen my act. Uh, so I went out on stage, and I did my act, and got a real good reaction because it was the first time the, the Los Angeles magicians, and there were quite a few there at the, at the preview night, had seen me, and I got a real good reaction. And then Jim McCauley came backstage after the show, and I met him. And, uh, and he says, how long is your act? And I said, 12 minutes. And he said, well, you can't do 12 minutes on The Tonight Show, but bring the whole act and do it in rehearsal, and then we'll figure out what you're going to do on the broadcast. And I said, yes, sir. So, so the next day, I, sh I go over to the, to the Tonight Show, and a friend of mine went with me, uh, uh, Don Keller, a magician uh, there in L.A. That I, that I had met, and he was, you know, went along just to like help me carry stuff in and 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 and, and, and be there. And then I had to I had to do this night show. And then I had to run down to the theater to do the opening night. So we get to the night show and we do the rehearsal, and um, and I'm and the, there's nobody there for the rehearsal. The band I was using recorded music because I didn't have charts, so the band was watching the rehearsal. So they were kind of applauding and reacting. So it was almost like doing a show. So I do the rehearsal, and then after the rehearsal is over, I'm standing there on stage. I'm talking to Kevin, the stage manager at The Tonight Show, and, and uh, out of the corner of my eye, I see a hand coming towards me. So I instinctively just reach out to shake the hand, and I, and I shake the hand, and I look up, and there's Johnny Carson on the end of the hand. 
And Johnny was very nice and was very complimentary. And, and we spoke just for maybe 60 seconds. And uh, he, then he left. And, uh, and uh, I was 21 years old. But I did have the presence of mind to ask him if we could have a photograph made that day. And he said, yes, that, that we can, we'll do that after the show. And I went, oh, that'd be great. So I did have the presence of mind to ask him about that. And so then about five minutes later, Jim McCauley comes over and he says, Johnny was watching the rehearsal and Johnny loved the act. And he said, let the kid do the whole 12 minutes. So, uh, so that was it. Johnny personally intervened. Uh, and and, uh, and uh, then we had to do another rehearsal, I think, for cameras and then we had you know and i had to reset each time the act which was very intensive and then it was like okay now i gotta get ready for the show now i'm desperately trying to get all my act put back together so i could do it for the broadcast and we did the broadcast and then right cool. after i got the photo made with johnny and i had to pack everything up and get in the car and drive down to the theater and do opening night who was on your show who was oh yes so I go out. I'm the first guest, by the way. How is that possible? I don't know. How do you put a 21-year-old kid on as your first guest? You were the lead guest. I was the lead guest. Now, the second guest is Dick Cavett. Wow. Now, I don't do the panel. I just do my act, right? The second guest is Dick Cavett. Now, Dick Cavett is also a magician, as well as Johnny. They both started out as kids doing magic and his teenagers. So now the next segment after me, Dick Cavett comes out, and now they start talking about me and my act and about magic and about the, the two of them doing magic as kids. And at one point, Johnny looks into the camera going, you know, no one knows what we're talking about, but there's four guys at the Magic Castle going, <laughs> this is the greatest show ever. <laughs> So that was my that was the launching pad for my career, and it was and it was and it was Johnny Carson personally responsible. And now I'll tell you the ending to the story. Now we fast forward thirty years later, and I've done uh, and I'm here in Las Vegas and I'm doing my show. And and earlier we talked about the sword fight. Well, when I when when I did my third tonight show or no fourth tonight show. I did the sword act, and and I have a sword, and I go over to Johnny's desk, and I put the sword up to his chest, and I grab him, and I pull him on stage, right? And now I, I have him pick a card, and I have him shuffle it, and I take the sword, and I'm doing all these sword moves, and Johnny's reacting, and it's hilarious because it's Johnny Carson. Got the biggest laughs I ever got with that trick because it was I was doing it with Carson, and it was just like great. So that was my fourth Tonight Show. Me, that was the only time I ever got to be on stage with Johnny. And he was a master. He knew where the line was. He knew how much to do and not, but not do too much, which a lot of people in his position wouldn't know. So it was a great spot. Now, we fast forward 30 years later. I come home from work one night. And I turn on the news, so it's like one in the morning, and I'm and I'm and I'm eating my supper, and I'm sitting in bed, and I'm looking at the TV, and the news comes over: Johnny Carson has died. And I've got it on CNN. And I'm watching Larry King, 
And Larry King is talking about Johnny Carson and what a legacy he left and how many people he launched in show business. And he's got Ed McMahon on the phone doing a call in and he's got other people calling in. He's got people. And now there's Larry King. And in the background, there's a screen in the background and they are playing a compilation of Johnny Carson's, you know, 30 years of The Tonight Show. And they've got the one with the axe. And and there's Don Rickles jumping in the hot tub with Johnny, pulling him in. And I'm sitting in bed, and I'm eating, and I'm watching this, and I'm just sort of stunned at the news. And there on the screen, behind Larry King, is me and Johnny Carson with the sword doing that routine. And I just sort of stopped, and I just went numb. And I was just like, that was the most surreal moment in my entire life, sitting there, and I and I did I couldn't say anything, I couldn't do anything. I just and they had me on the loop. It was like a seven eight minute loop of highlights of Johnny's show, and and I I couldn't comprehend how did I wind up on this loop on CNN behind Larry King with Johnny Carson, and then it hit me. There's no sound on the loop; it's all visuals. So they pulled things like the Ed Ames thing with the axe and Don Rickles going into the hot tub and me with the sword, with Johnny. Visual things where you didn't have to hear the dialogue. And that's how, I'm sure that's how I wound up on that, on that, that loop. But that was, that was a very, very surreal moment. Wow. All right. Six degrees of separation. I'm gonna mention a name. You can either say whatever comes to mind. Maybe there's a great story. Maybe there's just one word. Maybe it's a sentence. But what just comes to your mind, your okay. heart, when I say Just like therapy. <laughs> David Copperfield. David Copperfield. Yes. I remember seeing him doing his... T- he's a, th- a few years older than me, and he started doing his TV specials when he was like you know 20 years old. So I remember seeing him... Uh, I was back in Kentucky, you know, going to high school, and he's doing television specials. Uh, uh, always, always doing really creative, terrific magic. Mick Jagger and Paul McCartney are rarely ever going to be on the same show. With magicians. You're rarely going to be on a show, if ever, with David Copperfield. When you look at another magician from afar and you see that they're successful and they're doing well, are magicians more cold to one another and isolated? Like, is you know, if... If you went over to see a David Copperfield show on your day off and you went backstage and said, great job, David, would he or any other magician in the back of their mind be like, why is he here? (laughs) Is he trying to find out some secrets from me? Or would David or any other magician be appreciative of you coming over? Uh, Yeah. No, most magicians are very friendly and very fraternal towards other magicians um, and and if they see your show you know sometimes they'll if they have an idea they'll tell you and sometimes you'll go wow I, I never thought of that that's a great idea or they have a joke or a line or or a bit that they want to 
that when when I see a when I see a another magic show, uh, if I if I uh, see something and I have an idea or that can improve it or you know, I'm usually pretty pretty open about saying, hey, why don't you, here's an idea for you and just throwing it out there. Cause I know I always appreciated it when people did that with me, when they came to my show and said, oh, you know, here's, here's a line or here's a thing you ought to do at this point in the show. Uh, was always, uh, you know, sometimes somebody can see something with new eyes that you don't see. Siegfried and Roy. Siegfried and Roy. Again, I was, I saw them on, uh, uh Merv Griffin, I think when I was like, 12, 13 years old. Uh, and, and it was because of Siegfried and Roy that I wanted to come to Las Vegas, that I wanted to move, always wanted to move to Las Vegas. Because when I was like 12 or 13 years old, I didn't know anything about Las Vegas, except Merv Griffin went there for a week. Every year he would go to Vegas for a week and do a show from, from Las Vegas. I didn't know anything about gambling, Resorts. I didn't know where Las Vegas was. I didn't know what state it was in. But I'd seen Siegfried and Roy, and I knew there was a city called Las Vegas, and that's where the professional magicians lived. <laughs> David Blaine. David Blaine uh, came along at a time um, and, and sort of changed the, the business of magic on television. Uh, he he was the first one to kind of take the magic out and make it in, into a reality show on the doing his magic on the streets. Um, a few years ago, I was in New York City. This was probably about 2010, 2011. I had just retired from the stage, and there was a. Uh, there was a documentary that came out called Make Believe. I love that. That was with the kids. The kids. There were six kids, young magicians that they followed for a year. One of them was Kristen Lambert Kristen, from Malibu. Yeah. And and they and the finale of the of the documentary, they all came to Las Vegas to compete for the title of the world's best young magician in a contest that I was the sponsor of. And I was there to pre- present them with the award. And so they asked me. The, the filmmakers, uh, 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 Jay uh, Clay Tweel, who has a new movie out uh, now called Gleason, which is getting rave notices. Uh, but anyway, he, they asked me uh, to, to, to go help promote the movie when they were making their New York debut. So we went to New York, and, um, and we were at Tannen's Magic doing interviews and photos and, and promoting the movie. And um, I had met David Blaine uh, a year or so earlier when he came to my show in Las Vegas. And, uh, and so I called and let him know I was in New York. And he said, what are you doing for dinner tonight? And I said, nothing. And he says, well, let's go to dinner. I said, great. I said, I'm, and he says, where are you? I says, I'm at Tannins and I'll be done like at five o'clock. He says, okay, I'll pick you up. So now five o'clock, I go outside, we're in New York, I go outside on the street with Tannis, and here comes David Blaine on a motorcycle. <laughs> and he pulls up. And so, so I get on the back of this motorcycle. We're going to go to the sushi. So I get on the back of this motorcycle, and I put this helmet on, and now he, can, he tears off down the street. 
And, <laughs> and he is weaving in and out of traffic. <laughs> and all, at one point, we almost got hit by a horse and carriage. <laughs> and I'm like, really? This is how I'm going to die in New York being hit by a horse and carriage? <laughs> and so, so we... We go to the other side of town, and we go into this restaurant, and we had this great sushi, and it was a great evening. What do you talk about? We talk about, about magic and um, just life, and, uh, and he, he at that time was – and he's, he's, he, was, he was talking about uh, uh, doing a stage show. He was really interested in, in – and he had done you know, close-up magic and TV specials, but at that time, he hadn't, he hadn't done that much – performing on stage and that's what he was was really interested in and subsequently he has done some performances and uh but anyway that's what we make magic but at the end of the evening you know i'm going back to my hotel he offered to ride me back on the motorcycle and i was like no 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 no, it's okay i'm gonna i'm gonna just get a cab (laughs) (laughs) i don't want to make you drive over down and then your cab hit a horse As a sidelight, one of the things that I think most people don't understand about magic specials and a lot of producers and a lot of networks don't understand is shooting magic. You have to have somebody with the mentality that's one of the greatest directors of all time. It's a specialized, it's a specialized type of directing. It's incredibly difficult and you have to do many takes and so... When somebody like David Blaine is on the street, what you watch and what you see, you just see one take. But David, he's got two cameras going, sometimes three, and he'll be like, okay, cameraman, come on right here, go on, focus on this now. And then he'll start talking about it again. You don't see that part. Yeah. Okay, we're going to go over here and do this here, turn this way, do this, get the camera in here. And because he has to direct things as they go, because if you don't shoot magic the right way, you don't get and there's many specials and we've all seen them where the magic is not shot properly and it's not as great as it could be because you really have to do it and you have to do it over and over and over again there's never ever been a magic special that's successful where you're out on the street and they do one take it's just not possible it's it's possible but it's it's difficult here's the thing though each magic trick, it's different. You have to look at the trick and figure out, how do I capture this and make it magical on the screen? And, and you know going in, it's never, ever, ever going to be the same watching it on TV as it is watching it live. Magic's always, always better live because you're there and you're experiencing it. When you're watching it on the screen, you're, you're one step removed from it. But but here but when when we shot my specials, what we tried to do is I would discuss and we discuss this with the director with each trick. Sometimes the director would say to me, "Okay, what is the magic shot on this trick?" And by that we mean what what is the part of the trick where you don't want to cut away? For, for instance, let's say you're going to do you're going to have a girl and you're going to put her in a basket and stick swords through the basket. And then pull the swords out. She pops up. So, okay, you got the girl. She gets in the basket. Now, you can't cut. You can't cut from that shot to a wider shot or to a closer shot or to for another angle. Because if you do, the audience sitting at home is going to say, aha, did you see that? They cut from that camera to another angle. She's not in there anymore. 
they just stopped the camera. She got out, and that's why they did that. Uh, so, so that's that's what you have to try. You have to kind of think about the audience's experience. What is how is the audience going to experience this uh, when they're watching it? Uh, so that's the challenge with magic is is how do you shoot and it's and each trick is different each individual trick has its own set of challenges but the goal was always to bring to bring the experience as close to seeing it live as possible pen and teller pen and teller you know <clears throat> those guys uh maybe the most creative magicians out there they always have unusual and interesting takes on everything they do. Chris Angel. Chris Angel is perhaps the hardest working magician I have ever met. The guy gets, and I met Chris um, about 20 years ago. I had seen him on, on uh, a television show on, on one of these magic documentaries. And... Uh, and he came to my show, and I met him, and and uh, and then later on he did a special, which he financed himself and shot himself, and it was on the uh, Sci-Fi Channel. And he was, he had taken what that kind of street magic thing and taken it to a different in a different direction. And I could see he was really hardworking, and he was really kind of plugged into popular culture. Um, and he had this, he had this something special that allowed him to connect with people through the screen. And I started telling my friends, watch this, keep your eye on this guy, because he's going to be a big name in magic. And then a few years later, he did the Mind Freak series, and that just, you know, his career just blew up. I mean, it went, went to, a, to a whole new stratospheric level. Uh, but to this day, very hardworking. The guy only gets two or three hours sleep a night, if that. He's always, he's do, besides doing his shows every day, he's working on, just working, working, working on all these different projects. Doug Henning. Doug Henning. What a sweet man. What a kind man Doug Henning was. Uh, I remember Doug Henning, his first television special on NBC. It was, uh, I think, 1972, and I was 12 years old. <clears throat> Doug was the guy that kicked off the popularity of magic that we're still enjoying to this day. He came down from Canada, and they did the magic show on Broadway. It became a big hit, and, and uh, he did his first special on NBC, and he insisted that it was live because he wanted... He didn't want people to think it was trick photography. He did this first few specials live. And that's an hour special live. That's that's hard to do. Wow. But Doug Doug became an instant household name. Uh, and, and I got to meet him in 81 when I moved out west. And he was very kind to me, very sweet man. And... Uh, and when Doug passed away from liver cancer at age 52, uh, I went to the uh, memorial service and I did the broken wand ceremony. Broken wand ceremony, when a magician dies, it's usually done, it's always done by another magician at, at the memorial service. And it's uh, basically, it's talking about 
you have a magic wand and you talk about the wand as a symbol of a magician's uh, talent or his power, or what he does, but but it's just really an inanimate object without the magician to wield the wand, and you break the wand in half to symbolize the passing of the magician from one from this life to the next. And uh, and I did that at Doug's service. Again, another very surreal moment. Wow. Uh, let's talk about a few people that were around in the 50s and 60s and maybe up to the Doug Henning stage that actually were on television and were household names then. Mark Wilson and Harry Blackstone Jr. Harry Blackstone Jr. was a, was a dear friend of mine and, and was a terrific magician. And his father before him, Harry Blackstone Sr., um, very, very kind to me. He, he did an illusion in his show uh, called The Vanishing Elephant, and it was a really terrific illusion where the elephant would, would sort of visibly sort of dissolve and disappear. And when I opened my show at the Monte Carlo, I wanted to do, uh, make a car disappear, and I called Harry and asked permission to use his elephant vanish to vanish a car. He said yes and gave me permission. And that was so my car vanishing car was based on Harry Blackstone Jr.'s vanishing elephant. Well, it was one of your biggest bits in your routine. Oh yeah, it was a terrific trick. Houdini. Houdini. Yes. Uh, I became aware of Houdini, of course, through uh, Tony Curtis playing Houdini. My uncle used to say the only thing they got right about that movie was the misspelling of the name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was it was a pretty heavily fictionalized <laughs> version of Houdini's life. But Tony Curtis was such a great performer. And then, uh, you know, Tony, Tony Curtis moved to Las Vegas and lived here for the last 15 or 20 years of his life. I got to meet him. In fact, uh, I did the unveiling of the Houdini stamp for the United States Postal Service. Right behind us is a huge, like, 20-foot by 10-foot image of the postage stamp of Harry Houdini that was unveiled about... 1997, maybe, yeah. at 98. So we had this hang for the unveiling. We, we had this giant postage stamp hanging on stage at the Monte Carlo Hotel, and we had all the press there, and... And then we, we opened up the curtain, and there was the Houdini stamp. And then I did the upside-down straitjacket escape hanging with, with Houdini's stamp behind me. And guess who came out on stage to strap me in the straitjacket? Tony Curtis. Wow. Yeah. Was that cool? So Tony Curtis uh, strapped me in the straitjacket. And, and I did the upside-down straitjacket for the unveiling of the Houdini stamp. James Franco. James Franco. What a fantastic actor. What a great artist. Um, when, they, when they were working on shooting Oz the Great and Powerful, uh, they contacted me and, and sent me the script and said, we want, we're interested in having you teach James Franco magic. Uh, for the movie and and I read the script and I fell in love with it of course we all saw Wizard of Oz when we were kids and so this was sort of a prequel to it this these are the events that were 20 years before the Wizard of Oz this is how this is how uh, Oz got from Kansas Oz the Great and Powerful got got to Kansas and became the Wizard of Oz 
So uh, most of my work on the film is in the first sort of 10 or 12 minutes of the film that takes place in Kansas before he's whisked away to the land of Oz. Um, but it was really a thrill to work with James and, uh, uh, and, and, and the director, uh, Sam, is one of the, one of the one of the great directors uh, that we've produced here in America, and uh, he he was very diligent about wanting the magic to be really good. So I was very proud of I was very proud of the magic in that movie. Few questions, random questions that I think are always been on my mind. Number one: Why do magicians get such a bad rap? in the world sometimes. Obviously, a lot of people revere and love magicians, but why is it that a lot of the general public, rock stars like Mick Jagger, they get the most respect. Then the iconic comedians get the next level of respect. And it just seems that the highest level of magicians, no matter how successful they are, there's always people who are like, ugh, magic. And then there's other magicians, a guy will become successful, like you'll see David Blaine on the show where he dug his hand into his chest and pulled out his heart on Carson Daly. Oh, yeah. And you'll be like, oh my God, that was amazing. And another magician will say, eh, I know how he did it. <laughs> Like, why is it that magicians get this kind of thing about them? What do you uh, think it is? I don't know. Uh, you know, I think, I think the thing about it is there is a big difference in magic, uh, more so than any other art form. There's a big difference between experiencing a great magician live and experiencing a great magician on television. There's a big chasm between those two because live is always better. Uh, I always loved having people come to my live show that hate magic. I loved it because I knew I was going to win them over. 99.9% .9 of the time, I was going to win them over. And at the end of the show, they were going to say to me, you know, I always hated magic. I always hated magic shows, but I really enjoyed this show. Uh, there's just something about about magic live that uh, that's a wonderful feeling. It taps into something deep, deep in our DNA. When you see something that's just unexplainable, it's just something attractive about that. And 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 no matter how hard we work at it, you'll never get that same feeling watching on television because you're always a step removed. You, you always have an out. As an audience member, for instance, in my show, remember when I would be on stage and all of a sudden I was gone and I'm standing on the sound booth right behind you yes. and I blow the whistle? Yes. Now, when that happened in my show, I saw people turn and throw their drink in the air. <laughs> I've seen people fall out of their seats into the aisle. <laughs> And, and sometimes the best reaction was the trout look. People would turn and look at me and the mouth would just go open and they wouldn't applaud. They wouldn't laugh. They, the eyes would just glaze over and the mouth would be open and they just watch me like going back run, as I ran back like and they, they'd start to lean in because they, they couldn't 
they were they kept leaning closer and closer like is that really him is it is that really him <laughs> and they were just sort of they were they were it was involuntary but i would see them leaning because i know they would i know they were looking and that you could see the wheels turning in the head and they were confronted with something that couldn't be and it was just such a great moment and and so it didn't it didn't on a moment like that in the show, it didn't matter if they were a Magic fan or they hated Magic. The reaction was exactly the same. Uh, and you can and and on television, you can never get that on TV because you always have an out. As an audience member, if you see something a really amazing Magic trick on TV, for a brief moment, you'll be surprised. You'll and then you'll go, oh well, you know they they must have they must have done. They did a camera cut, or it's a special effect, or they, they did something. You know, you always have an out, and I think that's it. I think I think if you see Mick Jagger live, that must be fantastic. But you can put the album and listen to it in your car, or you can watch watch a concert on TV, and I think you get, you know, ninety ninety nine percent of the same thing. The music still comes through, whereas Magic, you're always a step removed. All right, let's talk about being a step removed. Something that's an anomaly in your profession. In every profession in the world except your profession, this exists. Yeah. There has never been in the history of magic a household name female magician. Why? Um, you know what? Uh um, uh, well, here, and, and now here's and here's the thing about it, though. When I was a teenager doing magic, and and you would go to a magic competition, you know, and you would have maybe fifty kids get up and do their act to compete. Maybe, maybe one would be a female magician uh, in the in the in the youth group that I sponsor, that I've sponsored uh, for the last 20 years, uh, at one point, when we, when we had it in Vegas every year, at one point we had about 60 kids come to the seminar, young magicians. And, and at one point we had about one-third of the kids were young lady magicians, Kristen Lambert being one of them, being one of the most successful ones. So that's changing I think I think the culture is more of accepting of uh, young ladies doing magic. Let's keep going in the culture. Let's keep going in there the culture. There are no household name African American, Asian, Latino. Why? Um, that's a good question. It doesn't cost money to start your magic career. Baseball, you have to buy bats, gloves, <laughs> ice skating, you have to buy equipment. Why are there no household name ethnicities in magic? Well, we're, we're working on it. The International Brotherhood of Magicians, we just elected our first Latino president. Oscar Munoz was just sworn in last month. It's not like racism where people are holding a culture down. Here's my explanation why there aren't more female magicians. A lot of kids get interested in magic the ones that stick with magic are the ones that are very maladjusted, like me. You know, kids, kids that weren't great in sports, and 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 they they gravitated towards 
magic. So I think I think the girls are much more well adjusted than the boys. I think you're probably right. Okay, so now the magic for those of you out there that may not know this. There's a show that's doing amazing with one of my clients in it, Adam Trent, called The Illusionist, which is produced by a guy named Simon Painter and Lee Marshall in Magic Space and became the highest selling, most profitable magic show in Broadway history and tours all over the world with seven male magicians who do different kind of magic and escapology. And there's an amazing guy who does the card illusion from asia korean guy yeah yeah he's fantastic he was the first he was the first korean magician to win the grand prix yeah incredible so when you watch new magicians come out and they do a show and collectively seven of them strength and numbers become impressive and it does big numbers does it make you excited to be a magician to see that things are getting hotter or do you say yeah yeah. Uh, that's seven guys together. and No, no. It makes me feel very, very good. Um, when they were putting that show together, uh, The Illusionist, I got a call. This is right after I had retired from the stage. And I got a call from uh, Brett Daniels, who was involved in putting that show together back when, whenever it was, 2010. And he, he called me and explained the concept of the show and, and wanted to know if I would want to come out and go on the show. And I was like, ah, Brett, you know, I've been, I've, been doing, I've been doing shows every day for the last 31 years. I just want to, I think I just want to want to stay home and, and chill. Uh, but they, they uh, that show has did amazing business and, and, and has spawned a whole bunch of other touring magic shows um, and they have a second company of it uh, outperforming now um, so so it just goes to show you know if you have if you have really good strong magic acts and you let them go out on stage and do their thing uh, people like it people respond to it sometimes people don't get to see artists in an emotional way but I imagine one of the most emotional days and times of your life was your last show you ever performed. Could you take our audience through that? Yeah, that uh, that was that was a very yeah that was a very emotional day, and I really didn't know what was going to happen if I was going to be able to get through the show or not, because you know that was I I felt pretty sure that was going to be my last time on stage doing the show. And uh, uh, I really didn't know if I could get, but ter it turned out to be fine and it, tur it turned out to be one of the best shows I ever did. So I got to leave the stage on a high note. And there is a, there is a two minute video on YouTube uh, that people can look up if they're interested because, because when we were planning the last show, you know, my assistant Ed Lynn says to me, "What do you want to do on your last show? Do you want to do you want to have a party? Do you want to have you know? How do you see this going?" Now, I've always felt vaguely uncomfortable on opening nights and five-year anniversary shows and ten-year anniversary shows, and I always showed up and I always went to the after party and shook hands and kissed the babies and took the photos and. But you know, I never, I, I never really enjoyed that. I enjoyed being on stage and doing 
entertaining the audience. What did you say to the audience that final time? At the I, end? You know, so this is what I said. I said, listen, you know what I want to do at the end of the show? I want to walk off stage and I want to walk straight back through the doors. I want to get in my car and I want to drive home. <laughs> and so, so I thought about it. I said, you know, that's a good idea. So what we did was we had a, we had a screen there that we could bring down to, to, when I did a little close-up magic or something that we could project on the screen. So at the end of the show, on the bow, as I was bowing, the screen came down, and my 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 uh, my buddy uh, Bob Massey, who is my AV guy there at the show, he came out on stage with the camera, and it was live. It was hooked up live to the to the projector to the screen, so he could get a shot of me from the side, and and we and he got behind me to get the reverse shot of me bowing and the audience applauding. So everybody knew it was live. I wanted to establish that this camera was live. And, and I waved goodbye and I said, thank you very much. And I pointed to the screen and I said, we're live. And, I ex and as I exited, the audience was a great audience. It was a standing ovation. It was, the audience was very much, they, they threw flowers, they threw roses, which I wasn't expecting, which, which, which shocked me. But I kept, and I had like a, a dozen long stem roses that I had picked up off the ground or caught, and I exited with the flower. And Bob followed me with the camera. So we and now now we're still projecting live on the screen. And we walked backstage, and I said goodbye to my stage manager, gave me a hug, and I walked, and I and I just you know was hugging cast and crew, and and my girlfriend Gabriella met me, and we walked and we walked out the back door. I got her in the car, and I. I got in the car. She was holding the flowers at that point. I got in the car, and the camera was there. And I just looked at the camera, and I waved and drove off. <laughs> and uh, and that was projected onto the screen. So did you cry? Uh, no, I felt like it. <laughs> I I held it together, and that that's I didn't know if I would be able to do. Awesome. So that was a great. It was a great uh, exit. And, uh, and it's on YouTube. And we used a couple of the shots in my film. Santa, I can't <laughs> wait to see that. Your proudest moment in show business. From 15,000 shows, if you had to pick one moment from one show, I'll tell you what happened. Now, you saw the show, so you'll, you'll recognize all these tricks. Um, in the second half of the show, I come out and I... I make the car appear for, for my entrance, and then I go down the audience, and I chat with a few people, and I, use, I try to find a kid to get up, a little boy usually, and I bring him up on stage, and I do the miser's dream where I pull the silver dollars out from behind his ears. And, it all uh, comes full circle. It all comes full circle. That's one of my favorite moments in the show because it does. It comes full circle because that's how I started in Magic. Then I put the kid in the car, and I vanish the car and the kid, and then I say to the parents, I can bring your kid back or the car, whichever you like. <laughs> it's a big laugh. Then there's a clap of thunder, and the evil sword fighting guy comes sliding down the rope from the from the rafters of the theater and sentences me to death, and they take me up to hang, to, to hang me. They take me up the scaffolding and put their noose around my neck, and they hang me, and I disappear from the hangman, and I appear on the chandelier in the middle of the theater 60 feet in the air and i come and i and the chandelier lowers down to the audience i stop at the balcony and wave at the balcony and i come all the way down to the main floor and i hop off the chandelier and i run 
up to the stage with the kid. Now, the kid has been brought around to meet me. And me and the kid run up on stage, and we take a bow. And it's one of the biggest moments of the show. And then I get a photo with the kid, and I give the kid a T-shirt, and I send him back to his seat, and everybody's happy. So this is this is the the opening of the second half of the show. So one night I go out, and, and there's a kid sitting in the front row. He's like seven or eight years old, and he's perfect. He's smiling. He's engaged in the show. He's having a great time. Just you can just look at his face and say, "Oh, this kid will be perfect. He's, he's the perfect kid." And 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 so I go down. I talk to a few people. And I look at the kid and I say, "What is your name?" And and I forget his name now, but it was you know, Davey or whatever. And I, how old are you? Eight years old. I said, "Come on, you're going to be my new assistant." He jumps out of his seat to come forward. I grab his hand and he goes right down on his face. And now he's crawling up the stairs to get up on stage. And I realize that the kid has a physical impairment. He has a cerebral palsy, I'm assuming, because he couldn't stand, he couldn't walk, and he couldn't control his hands like you know, like you most of us can. So so but he wanted to come up on stage. He was still he was trying to crawl up the stairs to get on stage because he wanted to be part of the show. And so, you know, for, for a moment, the audience is like, conf- like, what's going on here? So I get the kid, I help him, I, I, I'm bringing him up on stage, and now I'm realizing that he has a, he can't stand on his own. And now I look back to his family, there's the mom and dad, and there's an older sister. She's like 12. So I think, I'm thinking on my feet now. So I look at her and I go, is this your brother? And she's like, yeah. And I said, can you help us? She said, Yeah. She lives with the kid. She knows how to handle him. So she comes up on stage. Now, I, have him, I get him up on stage, and she's standing behind him, and she's just holding him by the arm. You know, she's got her hands under his armpits. And now we get him facing the audience, and he is beaming. He is just smiling and beaming that he is now part of the show. He is just so happy. And now the audience sees him, and they now everyone in the audience is just touched that this kid is is his 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 personality. He's so excited to be there, and so now I don't say a word about anything. I just go right into the trick. I start pulling the coins out from behind his ears, and every time I produce a coin from behind his ear, he laughs and beams, and he is he is having the time of his life. Here is the first time in his life probably that people are looking at him because he's a kid in a magic show. So we do the whole trick, and, and it's just fantastic. And now i got to get him in the car to vanish him. So I open the car door, and me and the sister, we bring him over, and I say, why don't you sit in the car? And I, and she said, and I get him on her lap. So now i got the two of them in the car. And now I... I, I twist his head to the audience say all right smile at the audience and he beams and I says and wave at the audience now he tr- starts waving but his but because of he's got a cerebral palsy his hand is is you know he's having trouble but he's way he is going to town waving and 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 we get I get in the car I pull the car into the into the box and the the car disappears the box falls apart and 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 I walk forward and I say I can bring your kid back or the car whatever you like and uh, the audience laughs, and then we go into the hangman illusion. They take me up the scaffold. They hang me. I disappear. I come down the chandelier. Now, I get down on stage on the chandelier. Now, my assistant, Karen, has brought the kids around to meet me. 
there in the middle of the audience. So I jump off the chandelier, I grab the kid, I throw him up on my shoulder, and now I'm running down the aisle with the kid on my shoulder, and I'm holding my right hand, I'm waving with my left hand, and he is just beaming, and the audience just goes berserk. They just, audience just went wild and would not stop applauding and would not stop cheering. They were cheering for this kid who this was, you know, this kid was having the time of his life and we get him up on stage and I do the photo and we do the pic in a t-shirt thing and send him back to us to give him another big round of applause. And it was, it was, you know, it was the, if I had to pick one moment in my career, it would have been, it would be that moment was such a, every planet aligned and it just it just turned out to be it went from being an illusion to being real magic and after the show now we finished the show i got another 30 minutes to go in the show after the show i'm walking from the stage i'm going down to my dressing room i'm going down the stairs and my assistant karen who brought the the kids around she is in the hallway and she is bawling she is crying and i'm looking there and i'm going I'm, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. I'm like, Karen, what's wrong? What happened? What, what, what's going on? And she looks at me. She's got tears coming down her face. She says, that little boy. And I went, oh, yeah, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? <laughs> she was, but I mean, the audience was crying. My assistants were crying. It was a, it was a, that, to me, those are the moments that, that are real magic. Um, and, and you just don't know, and we, we're not always aware of all those moments. Sometimes those moments happen, and we're not even aware, but when we do become aware, it's amazing. One time when I was at the Hacienda Hotel, after the show, I was signing autographs. We had sold posters and little programs and things, and these two ladies came up after the show. It was a mother and daughter, and they said, uh, the the they said, oh, we enjoyed the show. And I said, oh, thank you very much. Thanks for coming. And the daughter says, no, no. I mean, we really enjoyed your show. And I said, oh, that's very nice of you. She says, no, no, you don't understand. My father passed away a year ago. And my mother here hasn't left the house in 12 months. And I called her up and I said, I'm taking you to see the show. And she didn't want to come here. She didn't want to be here tonight. She didn't want to leave the house. I made her come with me to see your show. And this is the first time in one year I have heard my mother laugh. This is the first time in a year I've seen my mother smile. So thank you for that. And that was like, I got touched. You know, I got choked up hearing that. So, so it's great when you hear those types of things. But how many times does that happen in the entertainment business? You know, when you can... When that sort of thing can happen that we don't we don't know about. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next levels of your career. Oh, biggest disappointment in show business. Gee, that I don't know. I, I never kept track of the disappointments. I tried to. <laughs> I tried to take the attitude as, you know, if you get knocked down, it's, it's, it's not whether or not you're going to get knocked down. You're going to get knocked down. It's, you know, getting back up. It's, uh, but I remember, I remember one night I had a kid on stage and, uh, 
and I said, uh, I forget what I was asking. I said, what's your name and how old are you? And, and, uh, and all of a sudden the kid, and I said, and I said, who are you here with? And he says, oh, that's my dad. He points, that's my dad. And he says, and then he starts into this, he launches into this story and he says, uh, my mom's not here cause she's been taking drugs and she's got locked up or she left or she, and, she, and he starts telling this, you know, you know how kids will sometimes just tell, tell everything They they don't hold things back, but he starts telling about his mom who, 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 who had left and was on drugs. And, and, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trapped. I'm in a, I'm trapped in a box. I don't know what to do. I'm like, and my mind's going, what do you, what do I say to this kid? What do I, you know, and there was no place to go. I couldn't think of a way out. So I, you know, it, it just, and remember how Johnny Carson, when he had, would he have someone on that would say something incredibly where he had no place to go? Someone would say something inappropriate or stupid or whatever, and he would just look at the camera to let you know, okay, yep, yep, this is, yep, <laughs> no way to go. And then I just did that. I was just, I was, there was no way out. I just looked at the audience and looked back at him and said, hey, come on, let's do this. Uh, yeah, those, sometimes those moments, on stage where there's no way out you just acknowledge it and then move on got it um last question what advice do you have for the young performer growing up in some small whistle stop town in some place of the world that there's barely any entertainment or anything having to do with what they want to do in their lives whether it be entertainment or anything and what would you suggest the qualities they need to exhibit to get to the next level and get to have the kind of career that you've had? Uh, be tenacious. Just always keep working. Just always keep working on your craft, whether you're a magician or a comedian or a writer or an actor, just keep don't give up. Just keep on. Just keep on. And and for the young magicians, I always tell them, just do as many shows as you possibly can. When I was a kid, I would do a show anywhere, even if it was free. If I wasn't getting paid, I just wanted an audience to get up in front of and do my act. Just do as many shows as you can. Once you get a thousand shows under your belt, and you're really working at it, you'll have a good act. But it takes that many shows to test out your theories and. Keep the things that work. Discard the things that don't. Um, and uh, if I could give one piece of advice to any performer and they would instantly take it and not think about it, no drinking. That breaks my heart when I see very talented people who, who blow their careers over alcohol. Because whenever they do something crazy or stupid, there's always alcohol involved. Wow. Lance Burton, you laughed and made a joke when I said you were legendary. But I tell you one thing, this podcast to me is going to be something that I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. Coming here, being with you, inviting me in your house and your world here was just so special. I couldn't even begin to explain or describe how amazing this is and how your life is and you still appear to me to be no different a man than when I first met you and it's a real testament to the character and the person you are thank you so much Lance thank you Barry it's my pleasure 
Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on William Pointer from Austin, Texas. Congratulations, William. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on triple BBB, 1-2, December 5th, 2014. The heading reads Sherry O'Terry, five stars, and they write, been listening since day one, and I gotta say, the Sherry O'Terry episode is one of the best. Double exclamation point. Keep them coming, Barry. Well, thank you, triple BBB12. Couldn't have come at a better time. I know Sherry O'Terry suffered a loss in her family this week. And a really tough time for the family. And I know our audience and myself are wishing her uh, the best thoughts that we have in our deepest sympathies. Thank you again. All right. And as always, this has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name and put you on shoulders walk you to fame you'll get all the money drive that fancy car all the people love you cause you're going for life is for the dreamers they have all to gain it's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.